0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, June 11th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. The Cato Institute's Patrick Eddington has already gone some distance toward helping the public better understand misconduct at the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Gallingly, what he's revealed is that almost none of the misconduct appears to have garnered any accountability. We spoke this week about why Congress is now getting involved and what accountability ought to prevail. Cato's Peter Van Doren likes to tell uh, I, I think it relates to a, a broad range of government policy areas, which is you're not supposed to prop open fire doors, right? You're not supposed to do that, but you know, sometimes it just gets hot and you've got a really good reason for doing it. So you prop open the fire door and then it becomes, oh, well, you know, it's not a standard practice. Look, I know we're not supposed to prop open fire doors. It becomes like a standard practice. And You forget at some point the reason why you're not supposed to do that. And I feel like a lot of our uh, surveillance infrastructure sort of kind of operates the same way, which is we have these horrible events. We understand that those that we need to put guardrails on the surveillance capabilities that the federal government has. But over time, those guardrails get eroded and you have done yeoman's work sort of detailing how those guardrails have sort of uh, either been deconstructed slowly over time or have been ignored altogether.
1: I'm just reminded of, you know, the incident that occurred with um, former President uh, George W. Bush, 43rd President of the United States, where a a statement was attributed to him. Uh, This was in the education context, but I think it's still very appropriate here. Is our children learning? And I think in the case of the FBI, uh, which is what we're talking about today, uh, the answer appears to be no. Um, We have, of course, had in place now for uh, many months litigation uh, on a Free of Information Act request or a FOIA request that we filed with the FBI, trying to basically get our hands on uh, their own internal audits about how well they actually engage in keeping the fire doors closed so to speak and the audits that they produce so far we have six of them that cover the period basically from 2014 through 2019 just before the onset of the pandemic that show that literally on a year in and year out basis they are continuing to violate their own internal guidelines uh, which are based on the overall uh, attorney general's guidelines for domestic fbi operations And this includes literally surveilling, uh, people who are engaged in political activity. Uh, we're talking about folks that are, uh, affiliated with churches, mosques, things of this nature, uh, and journalists, you know, from what we can tell, this is aggregate data. Um, so in many cases, you know, we simply don't have the specific details. We have been able to get some specific details through other kinds of FOIA requests. And we've talked about that on some of our previous programs, but, uh, this is a circumstance whereby the FBI claims that they go out, they, they train people again, um, and it, it isn't working. It, it clearly is not sticking. And you have to kind of, I think, conclude at a certain point that the organizational culture has kind of become wink and nod uh, in a lot of respects. That even when these kinds of internal abuses are uncovered, so far as we can tell, nobody's lost their job over this. I mean, at least on the basis of the audits that we have seen nobody was nobody was disciplined nobody was fired so you know when these abuses are allowed to continue and there are no consequences for them uh you know what message did that send to the workforce it sends you know unless you actually like murder somebody and and even then there's this thing called qualified immunity that we may be able to use uh to help you out um if you screw up, uh, it's probably not going to be just you know that big a deal, and so there'll be a wrist slap or whatever, and maybe something goes in somebody's file for a little while. But there, there's no consequence for this stuff, and in my judgment, that's exactly why it continues. It's an organizational uh, pathology.
0: Very quickly, uh, if you can detail what we've learned or what the public has learned through uh, reports that people have read either uh, at from your writings or writings in the Washington Times about. The way the FBI, over the past since since the Bush administration, has been engaging in these assessments and uh, what risks they pose.
1: Yeah, you know, most of the time, if you ask somebody, you know, what you know what an FBI investigation you know would involve, I think the average person would figure, well, you know, they they pull files, they they go to you know companies like LexisNexis or whatever, and if they need to get wiretaps, they get wiretaps and so on and so forth. And and that's true for traditional investigations, but at the end of the Bush administration, the Bush 43 administration in December 2008, then Attorney General Michael Mukasey created an entirely new uh, category of, of quasi or proto-investigation termed an assessment. And what's really awesome about these things from an FBI perspective is that you don't have to go before a judge uh, to get permission to surveil somebody physically You don't have to get permission to basically run confidential sources against people. And you can basically search government databases, including classified databases uh, or commercial databases for which the FBI has contracts uh, to your heart's content. And you don't have to actually have any kind of criminal predicate to do any of this. It just has to be an authorized purpose. And the great part about this for the FBI in terms of the game, as I like to call it, is that the FBI decides what the authorized purpose is right? Through their own internal guidelines. So this is literally kind of like a bureaucratic, self-licking ice cream cone surveillance state style. That's really how I kind of look at it. Um, and of course, the, the other FOIA work that we have done has uncovered some very specific examples uh, where this has been uh, abused. The Concerned Women for America, uh, a pro-life organization, has been around literally for decades. Definitely not tied to foreign terrorists. Definitely a spotless record publicly uh, in terms of their IRS compliance and things of that nature. And in July 2016, uh, one or more FBI agents sitting in the Washington field office just decided they would open a so-called charity assessment on Concerned Women for America with absolutely no predicate. Nobody had come to the bureau saying, hey, I think the CFO is on the take or the CEO is getting money on the side. None of that. Uh, Now, they opened and closed this thing on the same day uh, from what we can tell. But the point is, it should never have happened. Uh, and as our uh, distinguished senior fellow, David Bowes, pointed out when when we talked about this uh, in another forum, uh, he made the observation or asked me the question. And so concerned women of America wouldn't have even known about this if Cato wasn't doing it. And I said, that's absolutely correct. And, and the larger point there, of course, is that this kind of activity, this database searching potentially isn't even running confidential human sources, all the rest of that, it can take place without a group or an individual being targeted,
0: even knowing it, having any any concept essentially that their fundamental rights have been violated. And this occurred in 2016. That is correct. And so if you're a Republican, perhaps you were annoyed at how the IRS was slow-walking so-called patriot groups in uh, 2009, 2010 that were trying to influence politics, not, not giving them their tax status, or you're concerned about the FISA court targeting people uh, from your preferred political candidate's perspective, you could see Concerned Women for America uh, being having an investigation opened into them as yet another partisan ploy uh, to uh, stymie your efforts at doing political communication or to uh, unfairly tar uh, an organization that agrees with and supports the things that that you believe in, and and yet the shoe can can just as easily be on the other foot.
1: Oh, it it absolutely can, you know. <laughs> but both the Clinton campaigns uh, and the Trump campaigns uh, from the 2016 cycle learned that the FBI is not their friend. Uh, it simply didn't matter. In the case of of the Trump campaign, of course, we had Kevin Kleinsmith, an FBI attorney. Uh, actually alter a document and basically provide a false document to the uh, FISA court in order to get authorization for, uh, for wiretaps uh, and and surveillance, you know, so this, and, and if, and if that happens at that level, an investigation that basically implicates a sitting president and, and they are falsifying stuff in an investigation like that, when they should be absolutely cleaner than clean, just imagine essentially how many kinds of abuses have almost certainly taken place? I mean, we get a little bit of a glimpse of this, a fairly substantial glimpse of this through the audits, of course. But the total scale of this is something that the FBI is still basically trying to hide uh, as we engage in litigation, uh, continued litigation, not just on this case, but on some other cases actually involving uh, trying to get numbers on the actual number of assessments themselves that have that have been closed. So this is a massive problem. I am very pleased, very pleased that Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland, a Democrat, and Representative Nancy Mace, Republican of South Carolina, asked the Government Accountability Office, Congress's watchdog, earlier this year uh, to initiate an investigation of the FBI's misuse of assessments. um, And that will definitely get underway a little bit later this year from what we are told. That would be the first of its kind literally since the Church Committee era. But it's just one data point, essentially, just one example in this massive surveillance state Uh, And the reason why what we really need is essentially a Church Committee 2.0.
0: Now, you make reference to the Church Committee pretty regularly, and this was sort of uh, an important event in trying to rein in government investigative bodies. Uh, What triggered the creation of the Church Committee, and and why did that matter so much?
1: Well, it's a very interesting history, and, and we could spend literally an entire Hour long podcast on that. But just very briefly, um, I like to call 1971 the year of the whistleblower, because that is really the year that we began to get some folks coming out of the federal government, both on the military side and on the civilian side, giving us a sense that massive surveillance targeting American citizens and groups had been going on literally for decades. Uh, And the first guy to do that was uh, Army Captain Chris Pyle and then Senator Sam Irvin in his uh, particular subcommittee on judiciary began the very first investigation there. And once we had Ellsberg come out, once we had the, the media, uh, media Pennsylvania Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI liberate thousands of documents from that particular office, it, it had a cascade effect. And so a series actually of congressional investigations kind of preceded the Church Committee. And I think a big reason why we wound up with both the Church Committee and the Senate and later on the Pike Committee named for Representative Otis Pike uh, on the House side is because the leadership in both chambers was essentially at a point where they felt like they needed to have a much more holistic approach and that's exactly what the church committee you know did its best to do uh and their work you know of course began with that resolution in january of of 1975 and they actually got underway uh with their initial investigation and a whole series of hearings beginning in april of 1975 running all through the summer and at the end of the whole process, you know, they had a series of recommendations, almost all of which were implemented. And that meant the creation of the standing Senate and House Intelligence Committees, the passage of the Inspector General Act, um, and things of that nature. But the piece of unfinished business, and this is what we're paying the price for, was a failure to actually pass a statutory charter governing the what the FBI can and cannot do from a domestic investigative standpoint. And that is truly the unfinished business from the church committee era. And we may, at at a point in the not-too-distant future, have something to say about that on this very podcast.
0: Yeah, so uh, we are used to, uh, in like a regulatory context, I speak with uh, Will Yateman on a regular basis mm-hmm. about administrative agencies taking it upon themselves to uh, invent or come up with sort of a novel interpretation of uh, what their authorities might be, promulgating regulation that often has no statutory support whatsoever. And here we have uh, F- the FBI, which engages in all manner of investigations and often does very good work at, yes. uh, at stopping criminals uh, sometimes before they act. But this is an agency whose mandate is, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, in many cases, whatever the agency thinks it is.
1: Certainly, whatever the attorney general decides, they ought to be doing. And then, you know, once uh, you know that that happens, then it's up to the director of the FBI, essentially, and his immediate assistant directors to figure out how they're going to go from there. And I think that gets to the whole issue of the lack of what I call adult supervision, right? But without av- actually having a bona fide legal charter, if you will, and this has been a, a big complaint of a lot of folks in the privacy and civil liberties community for uh, for over forty years. These kinds of things happen. And the thing is, you know, when Edward Levi was the attorney general under Ford, that is the first year in which a set of attorney general guidelines basically dealing with what was then called domestic security investigations were promulgated. And the Ford administration did that precisely, I think, in order to head off any kind of legislative effort to rein in the FBI. And we're absolutely paying the price for that today. But yeah, I, I love the work that Will does. And there's definitely a direct overlap here in terms of the overall uh, uh, organizational and legal phenomenon that we're kind of seeing play out. It's very, very serious. And unless and until we get some kind of charter on the FBI and actual regularized, and I do mean like annual audits of their activities, I fear that we are going to continue to just have abuse after abuse after abuse.
0: Patrick Eddington is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.